You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. When insulin is not effective enough for managing a patient's type 1 diabetes, should pancreas or kidney transplantation be considered? Our guest is Dr. Jonathan Friedel, Surgical Director of the Pancreas Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. Dr. Friedel, welcome. Thank you for having me. Most patients with type 1 diabetes rely on insulin to manage their condition, but sometimes insulin isn't enough. When should such patients be considered for pancreas and or kidney transplant? When patients have diabetes for a very long time, many of them have trouble with their kidneys and often need to go on dialysis. And if a patient is requiring a kidney transplant in these situations, usually we look at it as an opportunity because they're going to be on immunosuppression anyway. So we could put a pancreas transplant at that time and they would no longer be diabetic. Can you tell us about the different pancreas transplant categories, such as simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplant, or pancreas transplant after kidney, or pancreas transplant alone? I mean, how would you decide which one of those to use? Okay. Well, the vast majority of the pancreas transplants that we perform nowadays are in the context of a kidney transplant. And so if a patient is looking at getting a kidney and a pancreas transplant, then the options are to either get both of those organs from a cadaveric organ donor, that's a brain-dead organ donor, or if they have the option of a living donor, then they can get a living donor kidney transplant first, and then they can get a pancreas after the kidney. And currently, that's what we're recommending for people who have a living donor. And then there's a subcategory of patients that don't have trouble with their kidneys, but their diabetes is so difficult to control. They get low sugars without any symptoms, so they pass out, and there's risks at those times that they might have a neurologic injury or die. And when patients look like they have life-threatening diabetes like this, sometimes we offer them just a pancreas transplant without a kidney. So I'm assuming that you can't actually have a live pancreas donor? That's a very unusual circumstance. There's only one or two centers in the world that do those. Most of the time, the pancreas transplant is done from an organ donor, so a brain-dead organ donor or a non-heart-beating organ donor. But kidneys nowadays, since people have two, it's very common for us to do a living donor kidney transplant. So are then the people who are the donors for the kidneys, are they on call for when a pancreas might arrive through an accident or something like that? No, the way we do it nowadays is if somebody has a living donor, then we list the patient for the recipient patient for a simultaneous kidney pancreas until they get the living donor kidney. And then they wait afterwards for a period of time until a pancreas becomes available and then they have a second surgery. In a few places in the country nowadays, they do have such thing as a simultaneous living donor kidney and cadaveric pancreas transplants. Those are very difficult to organize because most of the transplants happen in the middle of the night and having the living donors available at the drop of a hat is sometimes not very practical. Can you tell us about some of the benefits and or risks for each of the different types of transplants you've described? Well, generally speaking, for the risks, it's a major abdominal surgery. So for any of the transplants I've just described, there's the risk of bleeding in the belly or bleeding in the intestine because we hook the pancreas up to the intestine. There's a risk that anytime you do a vascular operation, the vessels that you sew might clot off. So there's a risk of graft thrombosis. Because there's intestine surgery involved, the intestine might leak or the pancreas itself might leak, and that would create an abscess in the belly. 
And then all the other stuff that would come along with any time you open up a belly, you can get scar tissue that causes bowel obstructions or hernias or wound infections or whatnot. Line infections, pneumonias, and other infectious post-operative complications. And then in the long run, the patients are on immunosuppression for the rest of their lives, and that carries with it the risk for opportunistic infections and malignancies. Probably the most common cancers are skin cancers and lymphomas. How should a physician evaluate whether a patient with type 1 diabetes may or may not be a candidate for a kidney and pancreas transplant? Most patients that are type 1 diabetics with renal failure, we give them the option of a pancreas transplant. Warnings that when we usually try to discourage patients from getting a transplant is uh, if they're extremely overweight or if they have heart issues. Patients that have a history of being non-compliant with medications, we usually discourage from going for pancreas transplant because non-compliance with the immunosuppression could be life-threatening. We usually lie the patients down, take a good look at their belly, and if it looks like they're a reasonable surgical candidate, then we usually offer them the organ transplant. You know, in terms of the isolated pancreas transplants, the real key that we're looking for is patients that have the low sugars when they pass out because they don't have any warning symptoms. That's called hypoglycemic unawareness, and that's usually one of the main things we're looking for for a candidate who just needs a pancreas. Why would someone want a pancreas after kidney transplant instead of a simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplant? That's a very interesting question. You know, if you look at the pancreas graft survival over the decades since we started doing transplants of the pancreas, you notice that the pancreas graft survival is inferior for the pancreas after kidney group. Originally, when I was talking to patients, I would usually recommend they get a simultaneous kidney and pancreas. But actually, the truth of the matter is this is actually all about the kidney transplant. And if you look at the graft survival for a living donor kidney compared to the graft survival for a standard donor kidney, which is the type that you'd get with a simultaneous kidney and pancreas, there's a clear advantage to getting a living donor kidney. And it's not a big surprise because if you look at how somebody becomes a cadaveric or brain-dead organ donor, it's usually because they were in a car accident or a gunshot wound to the head or a stroke or something like that. And these have systemic effects and they would affect the organs as well. Whereas a living donor basically woke up one morning, skipped breakfast and donated a kidney. It also gives you the advantage that the living donor can be done before you start dialysis, which does have an advantage for graft survival. The other main reason for doing this is if you look at how long people wait for the simultaneous kidney pancreas compared to the pancreas after kidneys, we could do a living donor workup and get the patient transplanted within two or three months. And the amount of time they would wait from the time they were originally listed until the pancreas after kidney is almost a year shorter than it would be for a simultaneous kidney and pancreas. Most of those transplants are done as imports from outside of the state. The main reason that we encourage the living donor kidney transplantation is because there's probably 81,000 patients waiting on the cadaveric kidney wait list, and we only do about 16 to 17,000 kidney transplants a year. So if you look at the group of patients that really is the most disadvantaged by transplantation, it's the patients waiting for a cadaveric kidney transplant. So anytime somebody gets a living donor kidney, that's one more kidney that goes back in the pool. And in these cases, these are standard criteria, wonderful kidneys that are going back into the cadaveric pool. And from our perspective, you might need two operations to accomplish the same end, but with our current immunosuppression protocols, actually our pancreas after kidney graft survival is superior to our simultaneous kidney and pancreas transplant pancreas graft survival. They're 93% for pancreas after kidney and 90% for the simultaneous kidney and pancreas. So we don't really feel in our program that there's any disadvantage to getting a pancreas after kidney, and we strongly encourage the use of living donors. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Friedel, Surgical Director of the Pancreas Transplant Program at Indiana University Health. 
We've been discussing pancreas and kidney transplantation in patients with type 1 diabetes. What are the risks of immunosuppression for patients with type 1 diabetes who've undergone kidney or pancreas transplantation? You know, nowadays, uh, the immunosuppression protocol that we're using here at uh, Indiana University is not unique to our center, but basically we're using a type of antibody called thymoglobulin. It's a rabbit antibody to T-cells to induce patients and start them off. And using this medication or other ones like it, the Campath is another commonly used one, we're able to deplete the T-cells and we're able to use steroid-free immunosuppression in the long run. The main immunosuppression drugs that we use are calcineurin inhibitors, which have the risk of nephrotoxicity or neurotoxicity, usually manifesting as tremors. The other medications we commonly use are uh, mycophenolate mofetil and sirolimus. Sirolimus is also potentially nephrotoxic, especially when combined with one of the calcineurin inhibitors, and it also can affect wound healing. So we do see quite a few uh, wound hernia complications. And the mycophenolate mofetil can cause GI problems and bone marrow suppression. In the long run, the main risk of immunosuppression for these patients is uh, opportunistic infections. We routinely prophylax for cytomegalovirus and for uh, pneumocystis gervaisi pneumonia. We still do, however, see these infections quite a bit. The good news is that if we immunosuppress to the point that the grafts stay intact for long term and don't have problems with rejection, we do see the viruses. We have excellent antiviral therapies nowadays. And in terms of uh, malignancy risk, we'll see the occasional patient who develops post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, which is usually an Epstein-Barr virus-related B-cell lymphoma and usually responds well to anti-B-cell antibody therapy like rituximab and reduction of immunosuppression. We always encourage our patients to wear proper sunblock because you know, there is an increased incidence of non-melanoma skin cancers. And you know, if patients were destined to get a malignancy on their own, a lung cancer, colon cancer, or whatnot, we would treat them pretty much the same way, but it would be a little bit more complicated because of the immunosuppression medications. So taking all of that into account, what's the success rate of reversing type 1 diabetes in patients who've undergone kidney and pancreas transplant? In terms of patient survival, the patients who don't ever see renal failure are usually the ones that do the best. And if you look at national information, one year patient survival after a pancreas transplant alone, these are patients who did not get a kidney, is around 98%. And for the patients who needed a kidney, pancreas after kidney, or simultaneous kidney and pancreas, the patient survival is more like 95%. If you look at the pancreas graft survival, Historically, the best group of patients for pancreas graft survival were the ones that got a kidney and a pancreas from the same donor, so the simultaneous kidney and pancreas transplant, and their one-year graft survival for the pancreas is around 85%. And the patients who got just a pancreas, either as a pancreas after kidney or pancreas transplant alone, the national data suggests a survival rate at one year of around 76 78%. But these results seem to be improving, especially nowadays with newer immunosuppression protocols like the one I described earlier. And nowadays, actually, our, in our program, the pancreas after kidney is our best graft survival. Our one-year pancreas after kidney graft survival is 93% compared to SPK, where the pancreas graft survival is 90%. If you recall, I said the national one-year survival for the pancreas after kidney uh, was 78% compared to an SPK of 85%. There's a lot to be said for a good immunosuppression protocol. So getting beyond survival, how far does this go to actually improve diabetes management? Do these patients require less insulin or does it become easier to yeah, control their Usually by the levels? time the patients leave the operating room, they're insulin independent and their sugars are normal. And it's unusual for them to require any additional insulin, which you can imagine liberates them significantly. It means that they no longer have to 
plan their meals and take the right amount of insulin before they eat and they're allowed to have birthday cake and, and exercise is a lot easier because if a patient is intending on exercising when they're diabetic, they have to plan their carbohydrates and plan their insulin so they don't bottom out when they're running. With a pancreas transplant, they're basically a normal person. They don't have to put that extra effort in. And of course, for the patients who are having these lows all the time that we're passing out, this is a, a brand new life for them. These patients live in fear that they're not going to wake up one morning, and this is a life-saving operation for that patient group. So knowing that, do you see patients with just diabetes who have not yet reached the point of renal failure who would like to have a pancreas transplant just to improve their diabetes management? Currently, we don't recommend it. There's currently a lot of people who, for life and death reasons, require a pancreas transplant, and there is a waiting period of time. Nowadays, somebody's waiting for a combination of a kidney and a pancreas for probably over a year, and uh, for patients who are waiting for either a pancreas after they had a kidney or for an isolated pancreas, they're still waiting for months. This isn't something that's offered to all diabetics. Plus, the patients would basically be trading off their insulin for immunosuppression. They'd be buying one chronic, they'd be giving up one chronic disease for a different chronic existence where they would be on immunosuppression, monitoring their immunosuppression levels and checking labs constantly for the rest of their life, plus all the risks of the surgery. So I don't see pancreas transplantation being generally offered to the entire diabetic population. But the good news is, uh, looking down the pipeline, I do think there is a lot of hope with artificial pancreas research, and that's the pumps that are simultaneously monitoring the sugars and administering insulin, which are coming down the pipeline quickly. And of course, there's always research going into cellular therapies and genetic therapies, but right now, pancreas transplantation is a real entity for the patients who need it. Perhaps you could give us some more detail, and, and how long do patients generally have to wait for a pancreas transplant? Have there been any changes in that waiting time in the last few years? Generally speaking, we look at patients and whether or not they have antibodies to other people. You develop antibodies much in the same way as you're vaccinated by exposure. So some patients have had exposure to other human beings either through transfusions or through pregnancies or prior transplants. And if patients develop antibodies, it's difficult to predict how long it's going to take until that perfect match happens to come along. Uh, but for the patients who have no antibodies, patients are waiting about a year to a year and a half maybe for a simultaneous kidney and pancreas transplant depending on their blood type. And for just a pancreas, uh, if a patient has no antibodies, probably three to six months. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Friedel about pancreas after kidney transplantation in patients with type 1 diabetes. Dr. Friedel, thank you for being our guest. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.